In just a few seconds, I would like to read to you the passage to which we will give our attention this morning. We are in the New Testament uh, book, part of the Bible, which is about three quarters into your Bible. And we're in uh, chapter 4, chapter 4. I'd love for you to find this so I can read these verses to you. I too want to wish you happy Father's Day. Uh, For those that this is a hard day, whether you've lost your father or lost a spouse who worked beside you in the parenting of your children, I do pray that as we even walk through this text, uh, like Michael spoke, um, that you could at least put your heart in the Heavenly Father who has never left you and will never forsake you. Let me read this passage. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a first century church and now through the Holy Spirit to us. This is God's word. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgression are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Uh, I could screw this sermon up today. Uh, I know that because this is the third draft of this sermon that I wrote. And in the first two sermons that I wrote about this amazing text, I keep adding rules. I keep making you feel a little guilty (laughs) rather than rest in the good news that is held out in these verses. Every time I wrote a sermon, I wanted to make you feel like you needed to measure up and perform better. And yet the glorious message of this text is your performance doesn't matter. And this is tough for me. I, I I am a recovering overachiever. It wasn't until the uh, first half of my senior year of high school I was bringing home a report card with an A-, minus, fearing that my father would be disappointed. And he was. And so there's this sense like that I always have to make things just a little harder for myself and for you so I can outperform. And even as I say this, I want you to notice that I am trying to perform a good sermon for you. We need to ask for God's help. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you choose us not based on conditions, but according to your mercy. And that you receive us not according to our performance, but according to your grace. And so help us to see this and marvel at this in this wonderful passage. Help us to find life not in our performance, our achievements, our identity but in Jesus Christ, the one who has fought our battles and has won us his righteousness. 
and truly the one that we want to crown as king and Lord, just as the Father has done that through the vindication in his resurrection and now his ascension at the right hand of God. Bless us. Amen. So really, for most of our time, I want to zoom in on one of these verses. In fact, if I were to tell people to memorize Bible verses, uh, go ahead and memorize John 3.16. I don't want to get in the way of that. That's a very good first Bible verse to memorize. Uh, but if, if you were to put another verse into the stockpile of things worth meditating upon, it would be chapter 4, verse 5 here in Romans. You could spend the rest of the summer meditating on this verse for what it means for your life and the lives of others. And you would only begin to scratch the surface of its depths and its beauty. Let me read it again. It says, However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness, right? Here is God's answer to your guilt and your shame that by believing in God, he credits to us righteousness. Now, uh, for those who have ears for monetary terms or accounting terms, that term credit is an accounting term. Paul is using a, 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 a uh, a picture of how God works, that God has a heavenly ledger. Um, for those of you who don't know what a ledger is, it's a lot like a Google sheet. It, it's, it, it's God keeps the books. And, and Scripture will say in other places, our deeds are recorded. And so in one sense, in one column, every deed that we have done is put in one column. And everyone, as we've studied in Romans 3, uh, all those deeds, they're, they're laced with selfishness and sin. No one's done a, a truly righteous deed in their life. And so that has been recorded. So every time we fudge the truth, that gets, the record, that gets recorded. Uh, our dirty thoughts and our gossip has been recorded. God has marked down the times that we've overeaten and and drank or turned to prescription drugs. He, he knows about the abortion in our past, the money we've taken under the table, and he knows about every sexual partner we've ever had and every sexual partner we've wanted to have. But to the one who trusts God, verse 5, all those bad deeds get zeroed out. All is forgiven, removed. There's... There, yes, there's a heavenly ledger, but there's also heavenly whiteouts. And instead, it says he credits to us righteousness. As if we've never done a single even thing and only done good things. So if you've trusted God and you could get a hold of this heavenly ledger, you would find your name and going down your name, you would see things like 100% honest. 100% pure, 100% faithful, 100% generous, 100% merciful, 100% courageous. This is the good news offered to those who believe. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, we're actually going to go into verse 16 here in Romans 4, and in those uh, 16 verses, I think it's addressing three potential objections to what I've been saying so far. 
Three objections to this amazing news. Three reasons people might struggle to believe that they can be right with God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. What are those three objections? Uh, One is, but I haven't done enough. Someone might object, but I'm really ungodly. And someone else might object, I'm not very religious. And Paul takes these objections one at a time. First, what does Paul say to the person who says, but I haven't done enough? He's really going to credit me as righteous and his say, I haven't done enough. And Paul's first answer is simply, well, join the club. Join the club. We all fall short, even our most revered fathers. In fact, our most revered father, Abraham, he didn't do enough either. Look at the verse four verses of chapter four where it says, well, what do we say about Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh, what do we discover about him in this matter, this matter of righteousness by faith? Verse two says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, not before God. And so Paul asks a question to those who are wanting to pay attention. Well, what does the scripture say? Was Abraham justified by his works? Was he reckoned righteous because of a righteous life? And so what does, what does Paul do? What every good Sunday school person is supposed to do. He says, let me quote the Bible to you. What does the Bible say? And Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. One of, I think, four times in this chapter, he will quote Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it, that was what was credited to him as righteous. Then he says in verse 4, just kind of bring it home, to the one who works, wages are not credited as gift, but as an obligation. But it was a gift. So Paul is explaining that human effort cannot make you right with God. In many ways, faith and works are polar opposites, right? Faith is receiving and resting in God, and works are efforts and activities for God. Remember, we spoke about this last week or a couple of weeks ago. Faith is not some sort of virtue or something meritorious. Rather, it's a reaching out and putting your trust in the merits of another, namely Jesus Christ. I appreciate there's an Australian scholar by the name of Michael Bird, and he defines faith simply as our trusting response to God's own faithfulness. We're unfaithful. But what we do is we put our trust in God's faithfulness. Again, this concept isn't easy to understand. Uh, Last week, we looked at Paul laying it out in Romans 3, 21 through 31, that Paul declared that only those who believe in Jesus can be justified, made right in God's sight. And again, Paul is anticipating objections from the Jewish counterparts sitting in that church. And they're saying something like, but Paul, being right is all about obeying God. You can't be right with God and be engaged in wrongdoing. And think back to Father Abraham. He left his homeland to go to Israel. He, He offered Isaac on the altar. And they're saying human works matter, and they matter big time. And so Paul does. He asks this question in chapter 4. Well, was Abraham really right with God according to the deeds of his flesh? Now, because if Abe is declared righteous because of his works, he would have a reason to boast and say something like, look at my efforts, go and do likewise. 
But Paul corrects this way of thinking, and he quotes this verse from the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham wasn't right because of his obedience. It was through his belief. So, yes, we can, we can pick up our Bibles and, the, and look. Surely, uh, Abraham comes on the scene at the end of Genesis 11. He gets, he gets pretty prominent in Genesis 12, 13, and 14. And you can read those passages and you can see, actually, Abraham does believe God. Or, excuse me, Abraham does obey God on different occasions in those verses. You can read. He left his homeland and he went toward the promised land. He worshiped at an altar. Uh, he trusted God when there was a little dispute with his nephew. When his nephew got in trouble, he mustered an army. Like, there's different times where Abraham obeyed God. In fact, if you read after Genesis 15, there's different times that Abraham will obey God. He says, get circumcised. He gets circumcised. He says, offer your son. He offers his son. And so in some ways, obedience is a good thing. Obedience does honor God. But what Paul is bringing home and what you see in Genesis is you, you never have done enough to be right with God. That is not what made Abraham right with God. He believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul is continuing this logical argument in verse 4 when he asks, he says that statement, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Right, So most of you who have worked the past two weeks were hoping that that uh, financial payday dropped into your bank account on Friday. Right? I worked. I'm obligated for pay. And there's that sense in which, well, if at, at, on one level, if you obeyed God perfectly, you would earn God's blessings. But no one obeys God perfectly. <laughs> And we spend so much time in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 3, 20 to say what we've earned is death and judgment. And so our only hope is to put our trust in the works of another. Put our trust in one who lived perfectly. And if that's the case, then we have no boast. It's not by works. In fact, Paul will reiterate that same idea in another somewhat famous set of verses, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So to you who are saying, this sounds like good news, but I haven't done enough, Remember, you're just joining the club that recognizes that there's no amount of human effort that could ever make you right with God. That's why you have to trust God. Trust God. But then you're going to find someone who says, but I haven't tried at all. It's not that I haven't done enough. I haven't tried. I'm ungodly, not a little ungodly, really ungodly. These are the people who feel like they have a record of sins a mile long. I have a few friends who I've spoken to who particularly carry a lot of deep guilt and shame. And they, uh, they were called up into the military and they had to go serve in Iraq and Afghanistan or Guantanamo Bay. And they have done things that they never thought they would have done. They've seen things they never thought they would have to see. 
And they carry a weight of guilt that is maybe uncommon for some. But I know there's people in this church. There's women in this church who regret abortions. There's men in this church who've blown up their marriages and families with alcohol or abuse. Some of you have criminal pasts. And others of you have done deeds that you've never confessed to anyone. And yet Paul has good news for you that no one is too ungodly. Any record of sin can be wiped out. I'll read to you verse 5 again, but go on to verse 8. Remember, Paul says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the... What does that say here? What, 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 who justifies the somewhat cleaned up person? The someone whose Sunday school attendance isn't quite perfect? My... God who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. In verse 6 says, David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed, happy, joyful are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joyful is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Again, verse 5 is telling us who gets declared righteous by trusting in God. The ungodly get justified by God when they trust him. It's not the mostly good cleaned up folks. No, it's the angry 11th grader. The ornery 80-year-old. The impious 50-year-old. All the former blasphemers, the crooks and the cranks, the bad parents, the wicked, the irreligious, the liars, the cheats, the adulterers, the idolaters, the addicts, and the embezzlers. These people are offered God's unmerited mercy. And then Paul puts forward an example. Well, what sort of ungodly people? And Paul says, how about adulterers and murderers? Because he quotes David. David, who is guilty of adultery. David, who is guilty of murder. He says, let me, let me tell you what one guilty, murderous person in the past did. He wrote a song about how gracious God is. He's quoting Psalm 32. Friends, this is, this is, this is the church family hymn book. We sing songs about a God who doesn't reckon us as sinners anymore. The transgressions are forgiven. Sins are covered. Which sins? All the sins. And even that one sin, you're like, that sin? Yes, that sin too. It says, blessed is the one who's the, 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 excuse me, verse 8. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So there's someone here today that needs to hear that. It will ne- if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that sin will never be counted against you. And if it comes back up into your memories, your thoughts, your prayer life when you're going to bed, God is not bringing that memory up. It isn't. He's washed it. The Bible says he takes our sins, he separates them as far as the east is from the west. So Satan is whispering in your ear, your own like flesh sense of, I need, to, I need to work harder for God to wipe that away. No. 
No, it's been wiped. It's gone. It's never going to be counted against you again. To the, to the one who doubts if God can forgive them, let me assure you the blood of Jesus can wipe clean anyone's sin. No one is beyond the reach of God. Just maybe, just maybe, that's why Jesus' arms were crucified, spread out. So that you can always remember someone died for you. His arms were poured out, or ripped, uh, pulled out for you. So just like, this is how much God loves you. His head bore a crown of thorns. He, he was crucified among criminals. And so that... When you when you're wondering why did he why did he have to die like that? It's because he had to convince the world that he was dying for the undeserving. He was dying for the worst of the worst criminals. He was dying for you. He was dying for me. For every criminal crook and crank who has ever lived, Jesus's blood is sufficient. No one is ever too far from God. No record of sin is ever too long. God promises to never ever again to count your sin against you. You're supposed to believe this good news. It's glad tidings. You guys look somber out there. Like, this is great news. This is so refreshing. You can't do enough, and you're not too ungodly. How are you doing out there? Am I messing up this amazing news? So someone might say, I, but I haven't, I haven't done enough. And Paul says, we know, trust God. <laughs> and the person who says, but I'm really ungodly. And Paul is saying, we know, trust God. But then there's maybe this third objection, but I'm not very religious. Not very religious. You know, you might be surprised that the I'm not very religious crowd, some of them come to church and some of them don't. <laughs> Right? I mean, we're familiar with those outside the church who say they're unreligious or non-religious. They rarely have ever come to church. They rarely have ever think about God. Maybe they were forced to get baptized as a kid or dragged through confirmation. But, you know, by and large, they've stayed away from organized religion and maybe have some sort of fear of organized religion. And yet, the I'm not very religious folks are a part of this church, too. And you probably know who you are. You might be here most weeks, but you never feel like you fit. You struggle with sort of the religious things that everybody else seems to do so naturally. You look over and like, man, that guy just sings and his arms up. He doesn't seem to be care, but I'm pretty sure I'm out of tune and I don't think I know the words either. Maybe you struggle to participate in church or maybe in a small group. You just always feel like an outsider. And yet, even to the very unreligious person, God says, you can be counted righteous too. You can be forgiven, welcomed, loved, given a seat at God's table. And to prove this, Paul actually goes back to Abraham. Let's look a little bit at verse 9 and following. You know, Paul begins with this question. He says, is this blessedness, referring back to the blessedness that David had talked about, forgiven of sins, sins covered, God not counting our trespasses against us. Paul asks, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the circumcision? Right? Is it only for the God-fearing Jews, the people who really take God seriously? Is it only the super-religious? 
What about the uncircumcised? Like, I don't think we realize what, how like derogatory that term is, right? Like the pagan, no good, very bad, do whatever they want, normal American. Those people too? Can they get in? And Paul continues, well, he says, well, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was accredited to him as righteousness. And, and he says, well, think about this. Under what circumstances was, under what circumstances was it that his righteousness credited? Like, when did, when did Abraham get this wonderful promise that, they, that he was right with God? And he asked the question, was it after he was circumcised? Or before? Do you guys know? <laughs> he tells us. It was not after he was circumcised, but before. You guys want to check that? Check Paul's Bible knowledge or mine? You, you can find out that the promise of righteousness that Abraham is given is in Genesis 15. You have, to get, you have to wait to Genesis 17 before God shows up again about 14 years later and says, now let's mark you, Abraham, with a sign. He's declared righteous before. He's a religious, circumcised Jewish man. He's just a dude in the desert. Verse 11. He says, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He summarizes it where he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that they would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. The promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Where there's law, there's no transgression. Verse 16 brings it home. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. So it's not about law-keeping. It's not about circumcision. It's not about religious duties. It's not about religious ceremonies. It's not about religious practices. A person gets right with God. wasn't for Abraham. It won't be for us. It's by faith in God. And that's why we sing that silly song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's praise the Lord. Now, again, for maybe some 21st century Americans, particularly of a non, of a, that are truly irreligious, maybe you showed up here, you're listening online. Like, the concept of circumcision is like crazy foreign. You're like, ah, uh, yeah, no thanks. And yet, let me, let me just say that every human person is trying to be recognized as good, right, and wonderful through, through some sort of practice. 
So you could call them religious practices. You could call them secular practices. But we we are often tempted to think if we do certain things, embrace certain rituals, then then we're going to be right with God, or at least right in the eyes of the world. So think about, some people like go to certain events, a, a parade or a conference. And if I'm among these sorts of people and I'm supporting these sorts of things, I must be a good person. So people perform all sorts of religious religious ceremonies to show their colors. Uh, some will, will, will wear like a be kind T-shirt, and that's the ritual of the 21st century. I'm I'm a, I'm a good person. I have a be kind T-shirt, or maybe you fly a rainbow flag. But others will wear like I'm a proud to be an American flag, or they'll get a tattoo of a snake that says "Stand your ground." So people will mark their bodies and flag their homes. Because we desperately want this sense of being blessed or be a part of an amazing community to have significance and purpose. We want to feel in the right. And those secular rituals will fail you just as well as the religious rituals. Again, in the Christian church, you might think you're right with God because you've been baptized, you've taken communion, you've gone to confirmation, you've gone to church. But Paul's point is that no religious practice can secure the blessing that every person needs. Abraham received the blessing before the ritual. Abraham is declared righteous not by being a religious man, but by being a believing man. And so we can too. We don't boast. There's nothing to boast. We're made right with God by his mercy. This is so humbling. And yet it says in verses 6, 7, 7 and 8, it talks about it's blessedly humbling. I love that. Like a lot of times we're afraid to be humbled. That sounds really bad. I don't want to be humbled. But there's when someone gets this amazing news that through the work of another, you can be right with God, you are blessedly humbled humbled, happily humbled, make me humbler, make me happier. And yet maybe you're asking, how does this work? How, how is all this possible? It seems too good to be true. Well, again, we've been discussing actually a doctrine that's called imputation. Imputation, maybe you can hear in it, it's an accounting term like computation. And that's what it means when God counts people righteous. We're credited, we're reckoned righteous. Let me just recall from you from last week, how was this made possible? How can God do this sort of math? Listen again to Romans 3, 21 through 24. Paul told us, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's a free reckoning. It's a free justification, not by works. And it's all because, possible because of Jesus. It says he gave his blood for our sin and then he gives us his righteousness. Uh, you hear something similar in 2 Corinthians 5.21, kind of puts it in a nutshell, where it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We might call this God's new math. This is God's new math. Our sin adds up to a stockpile of guilt. Right? The guilt earns us death and condemnation. We're owed that. We're in debt to God. But because God is just, and he can't just fudge the books, he sends his son, and his son comes willingly to pay our debts at the cost of his life. Jesus takes the stockpile of our guilt and our condemnation. He puts that on himself, and God punishes that sin and that guilt on the cross. Jesus becomes sin for us and dies as our sin offering. But that's not all that God does. He doesn't just wipe away our unrighteousness. He gives us his righteousness. So Jesus lived a perfect life. That means that Jesus, he stockpiled this gargantuan heap of blessing and joy. And then he takes our debt and he bestows on us the stockpile of blessing. And until we die and as we're in heaven, we will just simply marvel at all the blessing that Christ procured through his death and resurrection for us. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Our sanctification, our glorification. He credits that to us by faith. Who gets it? The ungodly person who trusts in God. That's who gets it. Now again, scoffers will always come and they'll say things like, Matt, man, that's too easy and some of them are in the church. Matt, did you just tell a bunch of ungodly, irreligious people who don't do any work that they can be forgiven freely by the grace of God? Yeah. And to all you scoffers out there, do know it, it isn't as easy as you think. Because you know what gets in the way of this good news? Your pride. My pride. I want to... I want to participate a little bit in my salvation. Okay, I might only get an A- minus in life. So Jesus has got to give me that extra 7%, right? Pride has to be defeated. Pride has to die. You have to quit trusting in yourself. You have to quit thinking God owes you something. You have to lay down your objections. Those ones I haven't done enough. I'm too ungodly. I'm not religious. Uh, you have to get to the point where you admit hell and judgment. There's nothing easy about that. Uh, and, and then for some people, this is the hardest part. You have to repent from trusting in your good works. And for some of us, that's the hardest part of all. I didn't do enough. That's hard. Can I, can I just say one last thing to those of you who have been listening today, and you're, you're really glad that I'm talking to the irreligious, ungodly people who don't do enough because you do a lot. You're a pretty good person, and you're pretty religious. I would like to just challenge you to reread this week Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Read it slowly, line by line. Don't cheat. And what you're going to see is Paul takes a hold of your good religious hand, and he takes you to the edge of of an abyss so that you can look over the wickedness of your own soul and see how far you don't measure up. And I want you to come and take a look at your own hearts. See how far you really are from God. 
Uh, John Stott had a wonderful thing to say about what happens when you look over the abyss of your own sin. He says, to stand on the rim of the abyss, to despair utterly of ever crossing over, this is the indispensable antechamber of faith. I'm not that smart of a man. I didn't know what an antechamber was, so I looked it up. It's an English word for a lobby or a hallway. What Pastor Staub believes is every person has to come to the end of themselves before they ever cry out in faith to God. They have to get to that hallway. They've got to come out of the room of self-confidence. They've got to come out of the room of, I think I'm pretty good. They've got to get to this hallway and it's this antechamber of faith. We, we'll, we see ourselves as one who have to quit trusting in our best deeds and bring Jesus all of our worst deeds. Picture this. We're, we're kind of like track runners. That All we have to do is run a 400-meter dash, one lap around the track. That's all you got to do to be right with God. That's all you got to do to get to heaven. A single lap around an oval track, but then the gun goes off. And we can hardly get out of the blocks. We're sick in our sin. We're diseased in our feet. And none of us even makes it even close to the first curve. Our efforts cannot and will not cut it. You won't earn a medal. You won't be counted a, win- a winner. But wait. You're not the only person running. And you look and you see Jesus Christ. And he says he wants to run for us. And the picture is, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he picks your sorry, I can't say the next word, self up. He picks you up. And he carries you around the entire track. He lives the life that we were supposed to live. And at the end of the track, he takes the death that we deserve. He dies after running the perfect lap. But the good news of the gospel, he doesn't stay dead. And in his resurrection and in his earning of every medal and every accommodation and being counted just and the worthy son of God, he actually turns around and he says, let me give these to you as well because you made it around the track too. This is incredibly great news. This is for the ungodly. It's for the irreligious. It's for those who haven't done enough. It's even for overachievers like me, the anxious perfectionist who messes up sermons now and again. Yet, guess what? I'm not saved by how good this sermon is anyway. (laughs) But you could be, if you trust the news. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for those who are here contemplating the, the amazing truths of the gospel, hearing about who Jesus is and who they are. I pray that no person would think themselves too good for Jesus. That there be no person who thinks they're too bad for Jesus. We all fall short. And yet, however, to the one who does not work, God justifies the ungodly and he credits them in their faith in his Son as righteous. We thank you for this good news. Make us uh, humbly happy in this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.